This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'd like to say thank you to all the speakers for doing such a fantastic job. I hope you agree with me that um, this was really a, an extraordinary uh, group of, uh, of talks. Uh, and um, we're now going to start the question and answer session. Before we get started, um, we're going to uh, go to Garajna Jazienska, who, who is in Poland at the moment. And uh, it's 1230, so she can't join us live for the question and answer session. So, uh, so what we've done is we've recorded some questions beforehand, and she's going to answer those questions. And then when uh, that is done, we'll come back and have the live Q&A session. So let's, uh, let's now uh, go to Garajna Jazienska's uh, question and answer session. The first question that um, I see are, is the question, what are the possible reasons for different progesterone levels in women from Congo, Nepal, and the US? And uh, it's a good question. Uh, for sure, we don't know, but uh, I think that the, reason are, uh, that the reasons are differences in lifestyle, and especially in those factors that are related to energy to energy balance, to how much energy the organism has. So uh, women in these populations differ uh, in terms of physical activity. Yes, especially uh, those populations in Congo, so that's a, rep a Democratic Republic of Congo. And in Nepal, uh, uh, women came from the populations in which they um, did a lot of physical work. Uh, those are also populations in, women, in which women are going through uh, sometimes uh, weight loss due to the fact that they don't have uh, enough um, uh, food or, or if they are working very hard. So all those things that are influencing energy are factors that are going to influence levels of hormones when women are adults. Uh, also, uh, those populations differ in aged menarche. And aged menarche is also um, clearly associated with levels of hormones. So women who are maturing early have higher levels of hormones later on than women who are maturing late. So two or three years of differences in age of menarche is something that will have an effect on uh, ovarian function uh, later on. The second question, um, the US has reached an obesity level uh, of 42%. What are the effects of obesity on female reproductive hormones? This is very interesting, yes? Because if we think that the more energy you have, the higher levels of your hormones should be, um, that we could expect that women who are obese should have, in fact, this ovarian function operating at the highest level. But it just doesn't work that way. So... Um, the problem is that, um, of course, the, the main source, in, if we talk about women who are premenopausal, so women in reproductive age, so the main source for uh, hormone production, for sex hormone production, is the ovary. But also, this is not the only source. So fat tissue also has the ability, not really to produce the estrogen, but to convert the estrogen that comes from different sources. So the more fat you have, 
the higher your levels of estrogens, there are not ovarian, but from different sources. And the, the, the problem is that, uh, you know, the brain doesn't know where the estrogen is coming from. So the brain really doesn't know, is this ovarian, is this from fat tissue? So once there is a lot of estrogen in the body, the brain shuts the ovarian production. So women who are uh, obese have, in fact, problems with fertility uh, because the ovaries are not working very well in those women. So uh, for, for women like this, in fact, the, the, the effective treatment is to lose weight. Once they lose a little bit of weight, uh, they, their ability to get pregnant is uh, increasing. And then in women who are post-reproductive, so women who are menopausal, post-menopausal, uh, the mm, fat tissue also influences levels of estrogens that are in the body. So after menopause, ovarian production stops. And basically, uh, there should not be, you know, in, in the normal circumstances, not much estrogen uh, circulating anymore. But there is estrogen coming from uh, fat tissue. And that could be problematic in terms of uh, breast cancer because that's the increase of exposure to estrogens that uh, obese women uh, have. So it's not surprising that women who are obese have higher risk of breast cancer than women who have a normal weight postmenopausal because premenopausal is a different story. So yes, obesity has. Uh, really, really profound effect on, on ovarian function and levels of uh, estrogen in, in general. Great. Thank you. Uh, so um, I hope uh, you enjoyed that. Um, and I'd like to invite all the uh, other speakers to turn on their videos and their microphones and all that. And we'll begin the, the question and answer session. And Tatum and I will take turns lobbing questions at, uh, at folks that people have uh, have sent in. Remember, if you're on Zoom, you can send your questions through the Q&A button at the bottom. And if you're on the CARTA website, there's a Q&A form that you can use. Uh, hopefully, we'll try to get to as many of them as we can. So, so Tatum, do you want to do you want to get started? I will get started, Dan. Thank you so much. In fact, the first question goes to you. Uh-oh. So, Dr. Lieberman, at the beginning of your talk, you highlight that all animals engage in physical activity, but only humans engage in exercise. I was struck by the proceedings of the Royal Society paper by Miger and Robbers a few years ago, showing that wild animals, including mice, run on running wheels placed in nature, even when no extrinsic reward is provided. I was wondering what your thoughts are on the fun or intrinsically rewarding aspect of volunteering running or exercise that may be evolutionarily conserved across mammals and potentially even other classes of vertebrates. Well, that's a, that's a great question. I love that paper. So for those of you who don't know this paper, this is a, a paper done by a, a researcher in the Netherlands who was kind of curious about mice and uh, in uh, the wild mice in her garden. So she put a little, um, uh, a wheel in her garden and put a little camera and um, discovered that in the middle of the night when she was fast asleep, um, the mice would actually voluntarily run on this wheel. And some of them did some pretty, some pretty uh, good durations and, um, and other critters got on. And I think my favorite is that even a slug got onto the, the treadmill and did a few, I mean, didn't go very far, but um, so, look, there are other creatures do, of course, uh, do physical activity, and they clearly enjoy it. My my dog loves to 
to be active, et cetera. But for me, the, the definition of exercise is discretionary physical activity for the sake of health and fitness. So that's how I describe exercise. So, so you know, mice may run, you know, and, and get pleasure out of it. Um, uh, you know, other animals might get pleasure out of physical activity. That makes sense because evolution is going to, natural selection is going to favor behaviors that uh, that increase your reproductive success and being physically active can do so. So so for me, exercise is really something that we've invented in the modern world, at least the modern form of exercise, right? Uh, of course, exercise, you know, soldiers did exercises to to train for fighting, et cetera. But modern exercise, getting on a treadmill or or lifting weights whose sole purpose to be lifted, um, uh, you know, th those are those are discretionary activities for the sake of of health and fitness. And I don't think any other creature does that. So I'm, so that's, that's why I define exercise the way I do. Uh, okay, so I, I'll ask the next question to my old friend, Herman. So Herman, uh, the question is, um, on, on what do you base your estimate for the beginning of hunting and gathering 2.5 million years ago, as opposed to three to 4 million years ago? That's a good question. Uh, of course, you know, stone tools used to only go back to sort of two, two and a half million years ago. And now we have uh, stone tools at Lomaquai and other places that might be pushing back to, to even older. Um, for me, I, I'm gonna go with the, you know, it, this is always provisional, right? Cause we can always find earlier evidence. But at the moment, um, the earliest good evidence I can see for that I know of for, for good butchery marks and lots of stone tool manufacturer beyond the kind of, um, you know sort of little bubbles of it here and there that we might expect to find in, in isolated populations. The first really, uh, you know, concerted uh, sort of evidence for that, that 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 picks up and doesn't stop, as far as I, I know of, uh, starts about two and a half million years ago, um, and it continues after that. So that, that's why I'd put that there. Um, cut marks on bones, lots of good stone tools. Um, so I, I think that's ecologically where it kind of starts. Excellent. Thanks, Herman. The next question is for my colleague in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine, Alan Breen. Dr. Breen, have there been any documented variations within the human CMAH gene that have resulted in associated phenotypes? Hmm. The short answer is that I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, I, I really don't know the answer to that one um, in variations in the CMAH gene because, um, yeah, so, I can't can I tell you answer, that. Can I pop in an answer to that? Yeah. Only, only a single mutation that occurred to 2.5 million years ago. It's the identical mutation in all humans. There's no variation at all. It's a single, single mutation. So let's go on to the next question, which is for Yana. Um, loved your talk, Yana, of course. Um, so uh, the question is here. Uh, given that sweating plays an important regulatory role in the response to the kind of thermal stress encountered when foraging or hunting over long distances, is it likely that mutations in the ECE18 uh, and an increase in eccrine gland density began even in early bipedal hominins, such as Australopithecus, as you can tell. That's a, I did not write the question, by the way. Um, so, um, well, so I guess the short answer is um, we don't know, but what I would say is their ECE18 sequence is identical between modern humans, Denisovans, and Neanderthals. So we can date the evolution of this particular enhancer in its present form and whatever contribution it has to human sweating to, you know, 400, I don't know, what is the current, what is the current estimate, like 400,000 years ago, right? Um, but 
prior to, we would, we would literally need the genomes from those earlier hominins in order to really answer the question you're asking. We can make some inferences using molecular clocks about, you know, the, um, kind of how long it would have taken to accrue 10 different mutations to produce this activity, but that really requires teasing apart how the mutations interact with each other. But so it's at least at least uh, shared between the current known species of Homo sapiens. Oh, but, but if I can just follow up, I mean, if you had your druthers, right, if you had to guess, when do you think that increase occurred? Do you think it occurred with the genus Homo or do you think it occurred earlier? If you had to, if you had to, like bet your, you know, I don't know I had, a beer at, at the next conference. You know. I think, well, you know, I think the fact that this thing causes um, such a, it's a twenty. I mean, it's it's three. It's like three or four sweat glands in the mouse, but that's about twenty percent. That's a big bump. So I I think that the impact of it is is quite profound. Um, so I guess I would I would I would say. I would say two million. I would say with with sort of the idea of, of there there was some big stressor that came along that required that for, for which you could select kind of a big jump, um, and I think that's what. So I would say I would say the fitting with the endurance running hypothesis. What is it? Two point two million years ago. For your benefit. <laughs> well, if I could just add, I mean, I I, I, I you know obviously, I think you can't be an endurance runner without the ability to sweat. I mean, we all know that, but. Um, but, you know, I do worry that, you know, if I, I'm just trying to imagine myself being an Australopithecus out there, you know, four million years ago with only two legs and, and you know, saber-toothed tigers around and stuff like that. I, I would do anything I could to avoid them. And so I'm wondering if, you know, foraging during the middle of the day in order to, in order to, um, you know, to, you know, to kind of stay, you know, be, be out of, be out of there, you know, so to you know, be foraging when, when other carnivores are less likely to be out might have been a, a, a reason for you know selective advantage that then set the stage for further elaboration you know with the genus home but that's of course a hypothesis and i have no evidence to support that it's just it's just a hypothesis no and i would and i think that there are going to be multiple you know it's pretty clear this is a complex trait so there are going to be multiple genetic factors that are going to influence its evolution they can't all have evolved once what i would say that it's very important to know the full effects of this enhancer you know we've studied it in the context of sweating we now actually have evidence that's actually also involved in what happens to human hair this gene happens to be extremely important in the brain so you have to sort of weigh all of the biological effects of this to to really um to really understand what the likeliest time of selection was initial selection. Great, thank you so much, Anna. We'll move on to the next question, which is for Jandy Hanna. So Dr. Hanna, you talked about the kinematics data being incomplete. So what is the next step and what do you expect to see? That's a, that's a good question. Um, the data, and I should say the data are incomplete because I haven't finished going through and, and analyzing all of them. Um, it's collected essentially like motion, I mean, it's, it's motion capture um, data collection, except unlike in movies, when you're doing motion capture, there are no reflective markers on these animals. So you can't automatically digitize them. So you've got to have somebody clicking every single joint in every single frame, you know, over hundreds of, if not thousands of, of video files. Um, 
So what I expect to find is is a little bit of of what I see in the preliminary data with us with a smaller set of the the data already being analyzed. I, I expect to see that um, the smaller primates uh, are a lot more flexible, um, exhibit exhibit a wider range of variation of of joint and limb postures, whereas larger primates are more constrained to move in certain ways. Um, particularly uh, the larger primates that are over a kilogram um, are, are more using their upper limbs more in tension, so hanging from the limb rather than just sort of holding themselves out from, from, from the branch like the smaller primates can do. Um, I mean, we certainly see this already in, in extant or living large primates. Um, next steps after that is we, we have some hypotheses about the anatomic data related to um, more, more distal uh, concentration of, of muscle mass. Um, so we're starting to look at that um, and, and correlating that data to uh, what we'll see um, in the kinematic or motion data. Cool, <clears throat> thanks Jenny. So the next question is for Dave Carrier. So uh, Dave, you mentioned in your talk that the violence that plagues contemporary societies lies in the selection that shapes our mating system. In your view, is this still rooted in male-male competition, or would this also refer to other forms of competition in today's humans, such as economic competition? Um, that's a really, really good question. And I think, obviously, it's more complex than just male-male competition. Uh, and, and if you look at mammals, if you look at primates in general, the elevated aggression that occurs in mammals or males is associated with primarily with male-male competition. When you get to humans, um, there's another element that I think is really important, which is defense of home, defense of community. And males play the leading role in that as well. So, um, and you can think that element or that side of human aggression is actually tied to uh, this incredible attritional uh, or these very dependent offspring that we have, right? So we invest heavily in parental care. And I think that high investment is in some ways part of the explanation for intergroup competition that occurs in humans. Um, so it's not just it's not just direct male-male competition for access to resources, access to, to reproduction. In the sense of, of, of that male-male competition for resources, the economic competition is part of that, right? So that is, that, that is part of it. Um, so I, I do think a, a big part, and the evidence is consistent with this, a big part of the aggression that we see among male humans ultimately does come back to, to male-male competition. And, and so if we want to um, reduce violence and aggression in the future, we need to be thinking about uh, male brains, male psychology. And, and sort of basing our policy, basing our experiments, uh, and basing our questions on, on the differences between male and female brains. Okay, it's a complex answer, but it's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's an important question.
Would you mind if I just added a, another thought? Um, it's maybe like a kind of an after question because, um, you know, Richard Wrangham has made an interesting distinction between two different kinds of violence. There's, you know, reactive aggression. You know, if you somebody like takes your sandwich and you just kind of, you know, you know road rage, right? When you just kind of respond uh, off the cuff and proactive aggression when you kind of plan and think it out and it's, you know, it's intentional and often collaborative. War, I would say, is a, you know, form of proactive aggression. And, and I, I think that, um, you know, thinking about aggression in those two different domains, I think also helps separate um, some of the aggression that sort of occurs through sort of male-male competition for mates versus competition that occurs for other kinds of resources, because often competition for other resources is, is proactive, right? And, and in that case, you'd predict it to be less sex-specific. You predict it to be more general, right? Right, right. But, but, but in terms of, in terms of levels of violence and levels of aggression, it's not entirely a mono male monopoly among humans, but it's almost, regardless of whether you're talking about proactive or what, what was the other phrase? Reactive, right? Reactive, reactive, reactive and proactive. Um, um, ultimately, in our species, it's primarily the males that are, in, that are responsible for both sides of, of that uh, of that violence. So, and it's universal, it's culturally universal uh, among, among our species. So um, I, think, I think Richard is right in, in separating those out. And it's, it's interesting to compare, say, uh, the uh, reactive violence in, in, in chimps versus humans. Chimps have, uh, in terms of, in terms of um, the proactive, we may be sort of similar in terms of levels of violence, chimps and humans. But in terms of the reactive, chimps are much more reactive than we are. They're much more engaged in, um, or likely to, to engage in battery, or just striking both male and female battery. Chimps are notorious for that. And it's really interesting to ask, or to think about what makes, it, makes us different in that regard. And my guess is, and I'm not sure what Richard would say on this, because the paper they published on that, they didn't really come up with a good answer or didn't propose one. But my guess is that humans are, are so much more lethal. We're so much more dangerous um, um, uh, because of weapons, primarily because of weapons, that we really can't afford to be reactively violent as much because you can strike out, but somebody may come back when your back is turned and you'll be in trouble. Excellent, thank you, David. On to our other, David, Dr. Raishlin, I have a question about the other endogenous uh, cannabinoids. This one's 2-arachidonyl glycerol. Yeah, um, great question. Uh, I mean, there are other endocannabinoids. The best evidence that we have is that anandamide is uh, associated with um, exercise upregulation. And anandamide is really the key endocannabinoid that activates cannabinoid receptors, so or cannabinoid receptor one, sorry. So if we're talking about um, changes in brain structure, that's really where the action seems to be is with the CB1 receptors. Uh, 2-AG tends to activate CB2 receptors, which may be more important peripherally. Thanks, Dave. So uh, I have a question for Tatum. Uh, so Tatum, do you believe lower hemoglobin levels are the target of selection within Tibetans or a, pro or a byproduct of them being more efficient at high altitude? Yes, that is something our lab thinks about quite a bit. And 
I, I did show a few slides looking at um, other components of oxygen transport. So hemoglobin has been sort of the star of the show. It's easy to collect in the field and there have been a lot of studies, but we suspect there are other phenotypes that are important as well. Um, so, you know, we're trying to look a bit further, find connections with hemoglobin, also find connections with some of our genetic targets. Um, but one thing that I didn't get a chance to show was actually some of our data from individuals of Tibetan ancestry living at intermediate or low altitude. And what we see there is that these individuals tend to have lower hemoglobin concentration, uh, even at sea level. So there could be that there is some primary mechanism related to hemoglobin concentration in the absence even of the, the hypoxia challenge. Um, we are interested in looking at epigenetics in these individuals as well. So we don't really have a good answer for that at this point, but we are trying to work on different pieces of the puzzle um, to sort of better understand that. But, but I think, you know, getting to the topic of reproduction and, and some of these other phenotypes that are so important for selection, you know, there are groups who are studying reproductive fitness and, and other factors, some of my colleagues who I think are really getting at that question more specifically. So thinking about very viscous blood uh, in females and, and sort of at that first stage of selection or adaptation. Um, so yes, to be continued. So everybody, please stay tuned. So we'll have some better answers for you. And then I just got another question in my chat for um, just the group in general. So is there evidence that there are anatomical differences between modern humans and Neanderthals uh, that's related to differences in their levels and or forms of physical activity? Ooh, well, there's a little bit, but not a lot. <laughs> so one, 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 there's a cool paper that Dave Reichlin uh, was the first author on that uh, uh, some of us also were co-authors on looking at the ankle. Maybe we can talk about that. There's also, um, which suggests that they had, there's like a trade-off between efficiency and, and, and power production in the, in the, in the, in the ankle. And they, they look like they're a little bit less good at, at, um, at power production. So that would make them good at, at, at less good at running, but, but good at running, maybe walking up hills or something like that. There's evidence for, you know, robusticity, which is, you know, the thickness of bones relative to body size and length. And Neanderthals in general tend to be more robust than, than modern humans, which is evidence of, uh, you know, there's, there's a debate as to whether or not it's that's genetic or is it, you know, hormonal or is it the result of physical activity? If you're very physically active, you tend to get thicker, more robust bones. And especially if you do that when you're young. And so that could be evidence for more sort of uh, more loading of the skeleton when they're young. Um, some differences in the semicircular canals, slightly smaller lateral semicircular canal, which is evidence for less head stabilization ability, which again could fall into the, they were less proficient at running. And I'm running out of ideas, Herman, Dave, Dave, some of the other guys, uh, any, uh, Tatum, Jandy, do you have any, any, any more Neanderthal human clues I'll, I'll jump in a little bit and just say you know i think the data like the data that we published suggested maybe they had slightly lower running economy than than modern humans based on uh achilles tendon function and as you mentioned the the semicircular canal data but the likelihood of a, di a difference in physical activity levels i think seems not uh not very strong so my guess is that they were as physically active as as any other hunting and gathering hominin they have big thoraxes too, which suggests you know pretty high tidal volumes, um, which 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 can go along with uh, 
again, physical activity. So, um, but it, but some have argued that that's re that's related to being active in really cold environments. Uh, that's I don't think that hypothesis has been really well tested. But uh, uh, yeah, but but the idea that they were less active seems improbable. Being a hunter gatherer and in an Arctic or semi-Arctic or subarctic environment could not have been easy. They they must have been working pretty hard. I see some nods. <laughs> I would just jump in there. I mean, you know, the the what a nice uh, analysis recently by Brian Wood um, with Hadza data from you know, Hadza hunter-gatherer population in northern Tanzania shows that you know humans kind of play by the ecological rules. So you know, men who do the hunting in that population. Um, travel a lot further than women do who do a lot of plant collecting. That's because there's a lot less, you know, there's a lot fewer uh, animal calories on the landscape than there are plant calories. So just like carnivores travel further every day than herbivores, we see the same thing with hunter-gatherers who, who split their division of labor that way. And so just kind of applying that more broadly to what we know about, you know, the, the high activity levels of, of hunter-gatherers broadly, as well as, like you say, if you're a hunter-gatherer, as Neanderthals were, in a, in a pretty... You know, a tough landscape where the food is even probably further spread out on the landscape. Um, surely they were racking up the mileage every day just to find enough food, you know, to make it work. Can, can I jump in with a with a a question of my own on this? Um, what do we know about sexual dimorphism, levels of sexual dimorphism in Neanderthals compared to sapiens? Does anyone? There's data on that. I mean, basically, since you know the from Atapuerca on, uh, in terms of you know body size dimorphism, uh, it's not it's not it's not really different. Um, about muscle mass dimorphism, which is something that you've raised, of course, we have no idea. Uh, 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 but body size dimorphism pretty much is 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 pretty stable. Doesn't change too much, you know, from about you know four four hundred thousand years uh, till the present. All right, so I have a question for Dave Reichlin. Uh, uh, here's the question. Dave, uh, don't the presence of dynorphins during stressful physical activity have beneficial impacts on post-exercise endorphin sensitivity? Would that have deeper impacts on brain health? Um, sure, the, yeah, absolutely. I mean, en endorphins um, are a big player in some of the similar um, aspects of exercise-induced brain effects as endocannabinoids. Um, I'm not familiar with uh, data that suggests endorphins are associated with neurogenesis, but there may be that, that I just may not have seen that. Uh, what we do have is uh, data from a really cool study out of Johannes Fuss's group, who uh, they just published this earlier this year, showing that if you give people um, naltrexone, which is a, a, a opioid receptor antagonist, so you basically, you can't activate those receptors when you produce endorphins um, and you have people exercise, they still get a nice increase in endocannabinoid levels and they report the same kinds of sort of mood alterations and cognitive effects. So it certainly suggests that there are two players, at least there's probably, there's more, but certainly both endorphins and endocannabinoids are, are players in these uh, exercise induced brain effects. Great, thank you, Dave. The next question I have is for Yana. Are there any known population differences in the eccrine sweat gland density or distribution? 
Um, I actually also had a question, not from myself, but I will answer that. Thank you for the question. Um, so um, the only study, the only recent study uh, on non-pathological variation in sweat gland density among modern humans is something that Dan and I did when I was a postdoc with him and Pardis and a couple of other people. Um, and, and that is uh, looking at the association between variation and a mutation of a gene called EDAR uh, and differences in sweat gland density uh, between individuals uh, in a population of Han Thai, uh, Chinese and Taizhou. This is a variant that experienced very heavy uh, positive selection probably over the last 30, 40,000 years. It's found a very high prevalence in East Asia. Um, and it seems like individuals who have two copies of that variant have, um, I think it was like a 15% maybe increase in sweat gland density relative to individuals who have only one copy. I should say that it's extremely difficult to measure anatomical sweat gland density in a living human because to do it accurately, you actually need to take a biopsy of the skin and nobody is uh, volunteering. Without that information, what you need to do is um, basically know a lot about the life history of the individuals that you're studying, uh, because you'll use active sweat glands as a proxy, and that is very much environmentally influenced. So there's not a lot of data out there because the collection is very difficult. Can I ask a question very quickly of David? Um, so David, I was wondering if, so my understanding is that when you so to, to punch, there's punching and then there's like punching well, um, and that um, you actually can hurt yourself pretty badly. <laughs> I mean, and so that you're actually taught to punch well. And so I was wondering uh, if that is true, because I'm not 100% sure that it's true. And if it is, in fact, a learned behavior, kind of how your thinking is in terms of that, uh, in terms of selection. So, so um, it is true that, that uh, human hands do get, you get fractures in hands when, when, when people punch things, particularly people who haven't had any formal training. But the, the, um, the studies that have been done looking at the epidemiology of, of fistfights in, in, around the world, when people show up at the emergency room after a fistfight, it turns out that, that the part of the body that is most frequent, where, you, where the most fractures occur is the face. And it's, um, it's, you know, it's five or six times more fractures to the face than to the hand. Hands do break, but when people fight, faces break much more frequently than hands. And so um, um, this question of, because the other part of your question is, is training. Because when, when modern humans fight, oftentimes it's just sort of chaotic. And... Um, you do, you, you can fight much more effectively with some training. And the question is, to what extent would that have been possible in the distant past, right? And, 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 and so we're arguing that, that this striking with fists goes all the way back to basal hominins, the first upright bipeds, more or less. And uh, clearly, there would not have been uh, schools to train people how to fight at that point. And, but what there could have been was, was play, right? Just learning through, through rough and tumble play. And uh, so I, does that answer your question? Yes, I think it, basically you're learning through experience rather than in our very civilized society where you take your kids to a class in order to teach them how to beat, 
I think, yes, that's probably that's a good answer. Exactly. Yeah, we, we send kids to school so they can they can they can get into into trouble and then learn how to punch each other. Yeah. Um, Tam, the next question is for you. Changing the topic. Um, uh, do the neighboring populations that are closer in closer proximity to Tibetans than the Han Chinese also have the EPAS one variant? Yeah, so that's a, a great question. There are very limited data um, out there. We do see in a Mongolian population that we've studied and in a surrounding area that, that we see this same signature uh, at EPAS-1. So definitely um, something that I think should be explored in, in some of the other lowland populations. So we did a study looking at these high altitude Mongolian populations and compared them to lowland Mongolian populations, we didn't see EPAS-1, at least in terms of uh, having an adaptive signature uh, in the lowland group, um, but definitely in the high altitude Mongolian group, suggesting maybe shared ancestry or integration um, further within this population. I mean, that remains to be determined, but great question. And now I'll, I'll bounce back to, to Dave Carrier. Uh, do you have an understanding or do you have an example of how the understanding of male interpersonal or group aggression could guide policies, as you mentioned. I do. And again, <laughs> this is, uh, uh, can I share my screen? I pulled this slide up because it's, it's something that I think is really important. And these are just my, my ideas. So, um, who am, I, who am I to to make these suggestions? But but this is what I've been thinking about. And so, um, again, I think we've got to come back. We've got to acknowledge that there are differences in the psychology of males and females and and realize that it, males are the problem. Males are the problem when it comes to, to violence, disproportionately. And so this is a list of, of things um, facilitate and support direct directed mentoring of female leaders. I think this is obviously going to be controversial, but personally, I'm ready to just be done with male leadership. I think uh, it's an experiment we, I would like to try. It's just sort of switching over to all female leaders. Uh, empower males and females to be independent of males. Uh, we could, starting in kindergarten and elementary school, we could start reducing implicit biases, uh, racism, sexism, biases against different uh, gender identities. And then an, another thing that's really important is if, if, if it is male-male competition, then the experiment of reducing uh, wealth inequality and, and opportunity inequality among males, that should have a positive effect. And then among groups, again, female leadership, I think, would, would help us. And, and also uh, habituating, again, this is male psychology, actually brothers in arms is a big deal and males both in chimpanzees and humans males have this ability to fight to the death within their community but as soon as they're threatened from outside those those enemies come together as 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 a unit and work together to protect their own community so uh team sports where you had mixed interracial groups mixed sex mixed gender teams um i think would be would be uh, really beneficial, and then uh, the obvious one of enhancing international trade and cooperation on joint endeavors. Those are just my ideas. Okay, um, just keep them keep them moving on because we have a lot of questions. I'm going to move on to the next one, which is for Ellen. Um, 
So, uh, Ellen, the question is the following. As we heard from Tatum Simonson, some human populations carry genetic adaptations to underwater hunting. Uh, could the difference in oxygen diffusion due to, to the CMAH mutation also play a role in underwater behavior? Oh, that, that's an interesting question because, and something we've been thinking about because while humans lost or inactivated the CMAH gene two million years ago, it turns out that the, the pinnipeds, the elephant seals that you saw uh, Tatum talk about with Mike Tift and some of the mustaloids lost the same gene 40 million years ago. And so these species can really dive for like hours at a time and they, they don't actually shut down their metabolism. They're still foraging and hunting. And so um, we have some ideas on how um, that might regulate the oxygen in those species. They, they have a lot of red blood cells. So it, it's, it's different, you know, each, each, the oxygen transport system has many different steps that are all integrated to get to the end, but they don't all get at it at the same, at the same way, so. Uh, can, can I just ask a follow-up on that? So how about in terms of, um, I mean, CMH also affects capillary growth. And so there's other sort of aspects of, of sort of the oxygen pathway that also could, could be, you know, especially beneficial in that regard too, right? Yeah, that's what's kind of cool about the mouse study, right? So oftentimes when you study exercise or adaptations to exercise, Again, it's this integrated response. You're going to see changes in mitochondria and capillaries, changes in your brain, changes in your heart, um, and it's hard to tease out which you know which one is connected, which one is important. But in the mouse, you know, we made the mutation, so we know that that's where it started. And when we look at our mice, you know, they look like they're exercise trained. You you wouldn't know the difference except that we made that very specific change in the mouse. So. You know, it's kind of the chicken and the egg story, yeah. right? It'll help for any kind of physical activity. Thanks, Ellen. The next mess or comment is for Herman or question. Any evidence for differences in metabolic rate comparable to primates versus non-primates in non-mammal groups? I would expect there to be differences in birds, for example, corvids, which are long-lived and shorter-lived species of comparable size. Yeah, uh, so there's a lot of diversity across groups and even within groups in, in metabolic rates. And what's fun is, is you can sort of track uh, the ecological sort of reasons for those differences. Um, so tropical birds, for example, seem to have slower life histories and lower metabolic rates than uh, more temperate lived birds. I don't know about corvids specifically. Um, there is, you know, marsupials have low metabolic rates, actually kind of similar to primates. Um, relative to placental mammals, non-primate non placental mammals. Uh, there's some evidence that aquatic mammals have, um, have high metabolic rates, possibly because they have, you know, the thermoregulatory costs of staying warm in, in cold water, possibly because for other ecological reasons, a lot of them are, are highly encephalized, for example. Um, within birds, exactly, I don't know beyond the, um, the, the, the tropical versus temperate bird uh, analyses, but I think this is something that um, deserves more attention. People have done a lot of this work with basal metabolic rates before, which is interesting. Um, but what we're seeing is that you know the the, the, the full daily metabolic rate uh, measurements might be more more informative or informative of, of other ecological uh, signals there. And, and um, 
so you know, more to come, I think, on this. But yeah, the, the short answer is yes, there are these kind of, of metabolic adaptations to different ecologies in other groups. Herman, don't birds have high body temperatures? They've got slightly higher body temperatures, and at smaller body sizes, they've got higher metabolic rates than mammals. But that the, the, the allometries kind of cross. And so by the time you get up to, um, there aren't many of them, but, but large birds, uh, they don't have higher metabolic rates. And I don't know about the body temperatures there either. Body temperature is tough, right? Because you've got uh, both the heat generation, which is the metabolic rate, as well as insulation. Um, and so the, and the, the, the interaction of those two things gives you the body temperature. And so higher metabolic rates don't necessarily mean higher body temps. Primates, for example, don't have particularly low body temps compared to other placental mammals. Um, but yeah, so th that's like kind of another, a third piece of the puzzle there in, is the thermoregulatory biology. Cool. All right, I have a question for Jandy. Um, so the question is, what is the role of altered anatomy in apes, longer arm to leg ratios, longer fingers in regards to, to metabolism? Um, uh, does a longer, longer fingered hand of a chimpanzee allow it to climb with reduced energy expenditure? That's one of the, that's a great question. And that's one of the, the, the things that pushed us to start looking at what are the metabolic rates during climbing in primates? Because we, we know that there's a variety of anatomies across primates, um, but we don't have an answer to that right now. Right now, um, the only data we have on metabolic rate during climbing is that per kilogram body mass, a small primate, it costs us, the small primate the same amount per kilogram to climb as a large primate, irregardless of, of the differences in anatomy. Now, if we were to get a lot more data in each of those groups, we might start to see, you know, those, those um, graphs that Herman showed with, uh, with the scatter of all the, the um, data points, we might start to see that certain primates with um, an intermembral index, so a, a ratio of the length of the upper limb to the lower limb, um, fall above that line that we know is, is fairly flat, or certain groups of primates with a particular anatomy might fall below that line, but we don't have those data yet. All right, switching back to Dan, are there any negative or maladaptive outcomes that can emerge from the twisting or untwisting of the heart? Ooh, great question. Um, not to my knowledge. I mean, the, the, tw the twisting of the, the twist and untwist that occurs during uh, diastole and systole um, is a really important mechanism to increase um, um, what's, you know, the, basically the, 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 eject the volume uh, that's of, 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 of blood that's expelled with each contraction of the heart. And so it turns out that what's really cool about the system is that it is that the heart essentially acts like a spring. It's called a torsional spring. So it saves up energy, it stores up energy as it twists, and it releases that energy as it untwists and contracts. So it, it's, um, it's actually one of the mechanisms that enables uh, hearts to efficiently increase what's called the, you know, the, the ejection fraction um, during, um, during high, um, high cardiac output without, without increasing the cost of doing it. So it's, um, uh, it's a, it's a very cool mechanism that, uh, important mechanism to my knowledge, there's, I don't know of any pathology associated with it. Uh, if there is, uh, I'm, I'm not aware of it, but I'm not a, I'm not a, I, I don't treat people. So <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a physician. So, um, so that, uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not really qualified to answer the pathology part of that, but it's it's an important aspect of of human cardiac function. 
Yeah, and just to follow up on that, Dan, I think Rob Shave and Mike Stembridge had some interest in this in the Tibetan population That's as right. well. So yeah, I mean, it was Rob Shave who figured this out, right? It's Rob yeah. Shave and Aaron Bagish who were the who who did the, the key work on on uh, on 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 you know, you know twisting and untwisting and during diastole and systole. So, and I think Rob might be even watching. So if he's oh, watching, I hope he is. Maybe, maybe yeah. he can maybe he can add something to this. All right. So I have a question uh, now for. Uh, for Tatum. Um, so uh, Tatum, is hemoglobin a target for evolution? Do you think that overall composition of blood and specifically plasma volume may also be important? That might be a question written by Rob Shave, actually. I was just going to say, speaking <laughs> of. Um, yeah, so I think that that is a great question, important question. There was recently a study published um, showing that, in fact, plasma volume is really the key, talking about ejection fraction, all these different factors. So um, yeah, whether or not it, it is the, the target of selection, I'm not sure, and that kind of depends what context you're talking about, but we do think now that it is probably a matter of plasma volume that is really the key, and, and I think, you know, hopefully we'll have some more studies that will, will show similar findings. There, there's only been one to date, but um, hopefully more. If I, if I can just add to that, because I'm, 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 of course, very interested in plasma volume too. It's, it's, it's one of the most trainable aspects of, of, of response to physiology. So, so when people train, uh, they increase their plasma volume um, uh, substantially, and it's actually the fastest uh, component of detraining. So when people, you know, stop exercising and they kind of feel like they're out of shape, it's the, the first thing to go is you lose plasma volume, and that's often why you know if you if you haven't gone for a run like in a week and like you're running that first run is so hard. It's partly because your your blood is more viscous, and and it takes a little while to get back up to that uh, higher plasma volume, which which increases uh, you know increases a uh, performance. So so it's a highly labile system. So if if selection is going to act, it's going to act on the plasticity of that system. Okay, so. Um, I can't remember. Tatum, is it your turn to ask question or mine? Yeah, I'll, I'll take the next one. So um, this one's for Ellen Breen. Uh, cancers require a lot of energy and oxygen. Could the CMAH mutation form a liability by allowing cancerous masses to thrive under lower oxygen conditions? That's an interesting question. Well, uh, Dr. Markey and his group of colleagues have shown that um, the CMAH null mice have a more pronounced cancer phenotype. And um, so it's possible, right? So if you're, if the C, if the CMAH is allowing you to use your oxygen more efficient, it's really well known that um, tumors need oxygen to grow and they actually form more capillaries and that helps them to get, you know, bigger. So it, it's possible. I don't, I think we need to do the experiment at some point. Okay. Here's a question for Herman. If our bodies adjust to increase exercise by reducing workload in other pathways, is there a danger of exercising too much and dampening those other pathways too much? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, and and we know this. This is a the overtraining syndrome uh, that you know elite athletes are are you know need, need to be careful of. And so you know you can imagine there's a kind of a sweet spot where you're exercising enough that you're uh, regulating your other activities you know, downward in, in, in a healthy way, you're reducing inflammation, your reproductive hormones are in a, in a good place, your stress reactivity isn't, you know, over the top. Um, but if you push that too far, right, and you're taking too much energy away from those other activities, at some point, you take energy away from essential activity. And so uh, with elite athletes that have workloads that are just way too high, um, 
you know, you see uh, what's called lymphopenia. They don't make enough uh, enough white cells. Yeah, you see, you know, it, it takes them a long time to recover from from sicknesses and injuries. Um, you know, women and, and men uh, you know, can have reproductive uh, you know, dysfunction. And so there's a lot of, of bad things that can happen if you push it too far. And what's interesting is you can't fix it by feeding those athletes more. Uh, the typical thing to do when people have what's called low energy availability, that's what this uh, in, in the athlete's world, it's called um, reduced energy availability or, or, or you know, um, REDS, I forget what REDS stands for now, uh, but it is when energy availability is too low, one of the common ways that people try to fix that is you just feed the athletes more. But of course, if, if the limit is on how much energy you can put through your system, you can't just cram more energy on the top and, and, and fix it. And it doesn't fix it. You have to actually back off the workload. And that's how you fix these, these overtraining syndromes. And so, yeah, absolutely. That's just you know, further down the spectrum of this response you get from exercise. I just have to add, though, um, I agree with you about REDS, uh, reduced energy deficiency. Yes, thank you. Um, Relative energy I, deficiency. Yeah, but I, I do, I do, I don't disagree with you about that. But I do want to point out that there are a number of large epidemiological studies that look at, at exercise levels and 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 um, and 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 um, longevity um, and other sort of forms of health outcomes. So the UK Biobank study, for example, just produced a huge study with. Some some people who are at really high levels. There's also a, a study in the United States of more than a million Americans, and there's some people out there very far to the right. There's, these are tiny sample sizes, by the way. So there are very few people who exercise, quote unquote, too much. But in those populations, there's nobody has ever yet found a statistically significant increase in mortality rates. So 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 there's you know it's there's some trade offs, um, but you know there's so 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 few people who are out there at that end. It's it's there's not a lot of data. Uh, no, that's right. I think this, the strongest evidence is from uh, the, you know, the elite athlete world. And there you see trade-offs that would matter. They, they would matter in an evolutionary sense. If you have reproductive dysfunction, um, that's bad for your evolutionary fitness, but that isn't necessarily going to show up as a longevity issue. So um, yeah, totally agree. You, you, there are vanishingly few of us who are at, in any danger of exercising too much. We should probably all be exercising more. Excellent. I have a, another question for Dan. It says, you mentioned that early hominids foraged during the heat of the day and had adaptations that enabled them to cope with the heat, sweatiness, hairlessness, and this diurnal foraging fr freed them up from some predation pressure. Pata's monkeys are another primate that exhibit some interesting adaptations with their gland anatomy, long limbs, and have been, these have been interpreted various ways, including as adaptations to their hot, dry environment and widely dispersed foods. Has anyone examined the activity level of Patas monkeys to see if they forage during the hottest times of day when most primates are having their siestas? Oh, I love that question. Um, I wish I knew more about Patas monkeys. I have, I have observed them and watched them and um, and I do know about those data, but I don't know about that. Maybe somebody else here knows that. I just want to emphasize that um, what I, my, what I the, the idea about foraging in the middle of the day when when you know to avoid predation was kind of a hypothesis because um, uh, I don't have data that that Australopithecus, for example, were doing that. It's just a, it's just that as soon as we became bipeds, you know, we we became slow, um, and as soon as we became slow, we became easy pickings for for a lot of those dangerous carnivores out there. 
And I would do, if I were, <laughs> you know, I had to get out of the Jeep when I'm on safari. I would, I, if I was going to pick a time of day, I'd pick, I'd pick the middle of the day when it's really hot. That's when the carnivores are less likely to, uh, to want to have me for lunch. So, and that might be true for our, our Australopith ancestors, but it's just a hypothesis at this point. Um, um, but, but, they, but, but the Pata's question is a really good one. There's also um, uh, some chimpanzees who live in West Africa in really hot savanna environments. And, um, and I'd be curious to see the data on, um, on their predation levels and, and when they're out foraging. It's a great idea. I'll follow up on it. Thank you. All right. Well, I've been told by the powers that be that we are at the, at the end of the allotted time for question and answer. And uh, so it's time for closing remarks. I want to, again, thank everybody uh, for the questions that you've uh, submitted. And of course, the panelists and the speakers for great talks and, and the, a fun question and answer session. And, uh, and so I now um, uh, Ajit Varki will, will, uh, will, uh, will, will finish up the day. Thank you, Dan. On behalf of the Carter leadership, let me thank the symposium's patrons, Ingrid Bernishka Perkins and Gordon Perkins, as well as Kathleen Furr, and many other generous Carter friends. We're also indebted to Elizabeth Gregorich and Suzanne Lightburn for providing synchronous English to American Sign Language interpretation for the live stream. Let me again acknowledge the outstanding joint efforts by the teams of Carter, UCTV, and SDSC for the superb organization. Last but not least, let me thank all the co-chairs, the co-chairs and all the other speakers for stimulating presentations. And finally, last but not least, although it's not the topic of the symposium, I have to strongly second David Carrier. I think it's time to get rid of the men at the top. Have women run the world and see they can do a better job. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.